Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hello and welcome to the book club. My name is Christopher Hall. I'm a psychologist and the CEO of the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement. So today uh, we'll be discussing a paper called From Practice to Theory and Back Again, A Personal Perspective on Grief and Bereavement in a Changing World. My co-host is actually the author of this paper, Dr. Phyllis Kosminski. Hi, Phyllis. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and who you are. Sure. So I am a clinical social worker and I've been working in the field of grief and loss for 25 years. Prior to my being a clinical social worker, I worked in areas of policy development and program evaluation, Uh, but I shifted my career uh, to do direct clinical work, and that's what I have been doing. And I've also, uh, over the course of the last 25 years, written a couple of books uh, and last couple of years have returned uh, to teaching in the social work school at Fordham University. Fantastic. Look, one of the reasons I chose this this paper, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is because it really talks about your own personal background, your history and what brought you to the field. And I think that's something that we perhaps don't hear about. The private often is kept private, both in terms of you know, discourse in books and, and journals, but, but also, I think, to some extent in the, in the therapeutic um, setting. But it also talks about your work in, uh, in attachment theory. And um, I look forward to spending some time with you exploring what attachment theory is and uh, as well as something of, of your own background. Um, in terms of our history, we're friends, our colleagues. Um, we've known each other for, gosh, I don't know how many years it would be, probably at least a decade, what well, feels like a decade. You actually wrote this paper as part of a, uh, a conference, a conference that never happened. So you were invited as yes, a keynote yes, speaker. Yes, this is actually one of two papers that I wrote for you uh, as we reflected back and forth. And uh, this one in particular was written um, with the intention of presenting it as a keynote at uh, a conference that was to have been held in, in Australia, yeah. Yeah, so that was the 2020 National Conference on Grief and Bereavement in Contemporary Society. And, uh, of course, due to COVID, that was, uh, that was cancelled. So it's nice, in a sense, to resuscitate life back into this um, piece, of, uh, piece of writing. Um, we both served on the board of the Association of Death Education and Counselling. I've both been president of that uh, organisation. And we both serve on the uh, International Work Group. And it was, I think, at the meeting of the International Work Group that you and I were both on the same working group. It was after that that you invited me for the first time in 2014 to, to Melbourne. Yeah. Now, one of the, thing, the, the first things that strikes me about this paper is you talking about your early experience. And I've always been fascinated with this idea of, you know, do we choose the work or does the work choose us? And, and how our own, own early experiences of loss and love influence our world. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you kind of arrived at this work? Well, yeah, you know, it's what's interesting to me always when I think about how I arrived at this work is how many years I spent avoiding it. Um, and 
I, you know, this is one of the things that I talk about, which is that most of the work that I did throughout my 20s and 30s was really on a macro level. It was about policy, it was about program, and it was after, um, let's see, after I was teaching for a while in a political science department, I had been teaching for a while, and I felt that I had kind of reached the end of my, my shelf life in terms of teaching things that I had been doing for previous years, but I wasn't still doing those things. I wasn't still working in program development and policy evaluation. And I also started to feel that there was a real pull for me uh, to doing direct clinical work. And right around this time, I became pregnant with my first child. I went back to school uh, to advance my understanding and knowledge of uh, doing direct service work, doing clinical work. And during that time, uh, I avoided any kind of involvement with uh, things that had to do with grief and loss. When I did my field placements, my request was that, um, that I not have any involvement with, um, well, particularly with uh, mothers with cancer. I, I should back up and say that my mother died when I was nine uh, and was ill for much of my childhood. So uh, when I came to social work school, I was very clear on not wanting to work with women with cancer and also not wanting to work with children who had lost their mothers. Um, and I managed to avoid those situations while I was in graduate school. I came out of graduate school and went for an interview uh, at an organization called the Center for Hope and I walked in and uh, by this time I had uh, two children. I walked in and the entire organization was devoted to providing uh, bereavement care. And all of the groups and all of the books and everything was about uh, grief and loss. It was all about grief and loss. And while I waited for my interview, I looked at the books and I looked at the schedule of groups and I knew without a doubt that um, this is where I was supposed to be. And uh, for the next 25 years, that is where I have where I have been. And, you know, it was funny, Chris, because at the time, people who know me and, and care a great deal about me worried about my choice. You know, they, they were concerned that I was immersing myself in something that was for all practical purposes really the most painful event in my life. But it was also the most impactful and... Um, and I think that within a very short time of working at the Center for Hope, I really came to appreciate something that I, I believe, which is that our most vulnerable places very often are the places where we're most able to connect with other people. And I think that was something that I felt right from the beginning. When I read the paper, I guess one of the thoughts I had was, why that shift? I mean, you'd in a sense been quite deliberately avoiding this, not, want, not wanting to have these experiences in your graduate training. And then all of a sudden you find, you find yourself in a waiting room surrounded by books on grief and bereavement. It's true, isn't it? You know, you would think that I would go in there and I would feel like, oh, get me out of here. Run screaming, um, yeah. But there was something about it. It was like, 
I don't know, what can I compare it to? It was like, you know, sometimes you meet a person and your initial reaction to them is, uh, you know, that you just want to get away from them and then you mm -hmm. realize that the person is really compelling right. and that maybe the pulling away is because you know at some level, if I ever get close to this, it's going to pull me in and I'm never going to pull myself out of it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. the other thing about that is, is that I think I was at an age where I was ready mm. to, to do it. I was ready to do it. And the final part of that is, is that I should say that when I started working at the Center for Hope, I was very good with parents who were dying. I was very mm -hmm. good with children of parents who were dying. I was not good with parents whose children were dying. Okay. And it was about 20 years before I really, yeah. not that quite that long, but I guess, you know, what I'm saying is that, you know, we all have areas that we can, you know, that we, things that we can do mm -hmm. and things that are beyond what we can do. And I think it's important for us as helpers to recognize that and those things can change over time. Yeah, another thought I had was, um, you know, you, you were an older, more mature clinician, if you like, um, and to what extent having kind of a framework for understanding prevents you from being kind of engulfed by the grief of others? You know, is, that, yeah. is it a kind of yeah. a double-sided, you know, coin in a sense that perhaps to the untrained, you are consumed by that story um, yes. without a way of processing it. And perhaps as a, a more experienced clinician, you've at least see some reason for the pain. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, one thing, you know, people say to me, you know, how do you immerse yourself in this and feel this pain? And, and clients have asked me that. And I think that, and perhaps this is because of, uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things. In terms of clinical experience, what I think I've really come to feel is that when I'm sitting with someone who's in pain, um, the idea is not for me to take on their pain and take in their pain, but to create a space between us that we both enter into. So I enter into this space, they enter into this space, and it lightens their pain, right? And I'm able to hold their pain, because after all, it's not my pain. But mm -hmm. we enter this space together. It's like a, a common meeting ground. And then we both leave, and their grief is lightened a little bit. And maybe I take a little bit of that with me, but I'm never absorbing the whole mm -hmm. of what they feel. I think the other part of that, though, is that having been through it, um, at an early age, I'm very aware of my own capacity to withstand this kind of pain. I know it's not going to knock the wind out of me. It's not yeah. going to break me. And I think that's also something that I share, not verbally, but that I think I share energetically mm -hmm. with people. Because I think that fear is a very big part of grief. And I mm. think that for people to be able to sit with me and to pick up on the fact that I'm, I'm not afraid and they can mm. say whatever they need to say to me. Um, I hope that that's responsive to your question. But, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a combination of things. It's a combination of experience, of knowing myself, 
I'm interested in, in your comment you made about your friends having some anxiety about you moving into this work, and, and we've both worked in this field for for 25 years, and um, I'm sure I'm sure you um, get the, res- the the response from some people that it must be so difficult, or um, you must be such a saintly person. Um, oh yes, for, for do you, doing you this get work. that too? Do yeah, you yeah. get that too? You must yeah. get that too. It's as, funny, as, actually. Yeah, how, how it's what's funny is that we've both been in in it for you know, very similar uh, periods of time, although our work is very different. But Mm. yeah, you know, it's a funny thing, you know, getting that thing about the saint because, no, I I really don't don't consider myself um, a saint. And, you know, what I think is that, um, in fact, doing this work is actually much better suited to me than doing many other kinds of therapy because to be honest I think as a child who lost a parent at an early age and I've had many conversations with people about this I'm not always very tolerant of um, what seemed like really petty complaints I, I realized early on that I was not going to be a good therapist for someone who was upset because her husband wouldn't let her build uh, you know, a, a second room onto the summer home. Um, you know, just um, I do best. I am my most empathic, my most conscious, my most engaged with people uh, who are genuinely suffering, who are suffering from something real. And also people who are grieving, I, I find, I don't know about you, but when someone is grieving, they, they really are, are looking for someone to help them. They're not just showing up with the idea that, well, maybe some therapy, maybe I'll work on this, maybe I won't work on it. When, when somebody is grieving, they, they're, they're coming to work. They're coming, um, for the most part, for help. You know, They're ready for help. A lot of them have never been in therapy before, you know. A lot of them have really rejected the idea of therapy in the past. So this is something new for them. In, in the paper, you, you, you um, provide a 13th century quote from Rumi, which, which I really love. Um, All day I think about it, then at night I say it, where did I come from and what am I supposed to be doing? It's kind of a really interesting thought about how we find our way. And in the paper you talk about, obviously, the impact of your you know, mother's death on this both perhaps then avoidance and then, you know, confronting of uh, of that. I think uh, I think back to a time I think we may have had dinner and, and you made a comment which has really struck to me um, and that was uh, the response that to people's question how sad this work must be uh, and your statement was something along the lines of, well, it's a job where I spend much of my time listening to love stories. And I think that's a really interesting, this relationship between kind of love and and loss. Um, one of our, our common friends, Colin Murray Park, says if you want to be an expert in, in loss, then become an expert in love. So, you know, it's just, it's just a, a lovely idea. Can you kind of maybe speak about the, the place that love takes? Yes. Well, you know, I mean, as you say, you know, the, the truth is that, again, you know, is that to be creatures who love we have to be creatures who are ready to recognize that 
there's always the possibility for, for loss and, and that the only way to avoid it is really to avoid love. And, and I think for me, the idea of avoiding love as a way of avoiding loss is something that's really never been um, a possibility for me. I think it's ha half a life. Um, and so, you know, people will sometimes say that when you have an early loss that um, you tend then to shy away from having, uh, you know, subsequent close attachments because once you've been hurt that way, you don't want to be hurt again. And I've certainly seen that happen with people. Um, but when I say that I hear love stories, it's because the vast majority of times when someone comes to talk to me about uh, their loss, what they're talking about is the absence from their life of someone who was a sanctuary for them. Uh, you know, I, 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 I always think of the world as, you know, the world is, is too big for us. You know, and we need places where we can rest and where we can feel safe and where we can feel welcome. And this is what our, our relationships, our, our, our love relationships, our attachments, this is what they, they offer us. And when we lose an attachment, we're going to feel dislocated, we're going to feel dysregulated, we're going to feel afraid, we're going to feel lonely. Um, but it's because attachments are what make us feel grounded and safe. And, um, and we're born, we're born to form attachments. It's literally what we're made for. So, I mean, We'll come back to that a little bit later because I, I just want to return for a minute to this idea of you know, your, your kind of personal experience. When I was reading the paper, of course, I started to think about my own experiences, which were very yes. different from yours. My father died in his mid-80s of dementia. My mother died a year or two ago, just after a 90th birthday. So, I, you know, I didn't have that kind of seismic experience of loss in childhood that you did. Um, what I did have is I, I had a father who was a minister of religion. I had a grandfather who was a Methodist missionary. So I, I was, in, in a sense, poached in a in a world of I guess dealing with large questions, you know, of of, of life mm. and death, and, and perhaps mm. um, having hearses drive up outside my bedroom window as we live next to the church and seeing oh. the same oh. caskets carried in and out. Um, right, right. But I, but I think for me, one experience was when I and it's. Uh, it's really interesting how I remember this when I was uh, I just moved to Victoria from New South Wales and went to grade six and I had this very strong memory of a classmate having died over the weekend from electrocution and nothing being said um, mm. it's a very strong very strong ex memory that you know what is it that's so unspeakable about this and I guess as a curious child that really um, uh, it was something I kind of struggled with for some uh, for some time and <laughs> Somewhat yes. unrelated to the story, but recently I actually, and I can distinctly remember this this uh, this kid's name, and I recently looked it up to find his gravesite to discover he'd in fact died a year later than I'd remembered, which was which is kind of really interesting. So whether that's some um, misremembering huh. or a different experience, but um, it's one that really in influenced me, and I've kind of recently discovered that you know that that memory is actually not you know, as factually as, as accurate as, as perhaps I might have recalled. And I think, you know, ha having experiences of, uh, 
you know, somebody having a cardiac arrest um, and, and dying in front of me and, and CPR. There's, there's, there's been this kind of very strong sense of the finiteness of life. I sometimes qu can't quite appreciate yes. how people lead their lives as if there's an endless supply of tomorrows. Um, Isn't it true? Yeah, it's so just, true, right? And, yeah, uh, yeah. and linked to that, um, the extent to which this has changed me as a parent. And I wonder, um, my daughter who's now married and in her late 20s, uh, talking about going out and um, one night in the car and to, to a party and, and me feeling this anxiety and saying that, you know, when you've sat with a parent whose child has died in a car accident, um, you know, things don't look as safe as they yeah. I'm wondering whether this yes. work has changed the way you parented or the way you've kind of lived your life, or is that just my own personal neurosis and anxiety? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it is. It's interesting. You know, I, certainly my children would say that it had a big effect on their lives um, because, you know, they always say, you know, their friends will talk about how nobody ever talked about, you know, death and, and their house. And, of course, my children, every time they got in the car to go to an after-school activity, the back seat was full of books about you know, death. My husband would always say, you know, only you would consider this vacation reading. Um, you know, there was just a lot, a lot of it always. And um, you know, two things I want to say about that. I mean, one of one in relation to my work, which is that I've de it's definitely influenced my feelings about you know being honest with children about what's going on. Well, I mean, and work at it at home about being honest with children about what's going on with a parent who's ill. Um, because a lot of times people imagine that children don't know what's going on or a parent dies and a lot of questions that come up are, should we take them to the funeral? Should we? I wasn't taken to my mother's funeral. And I understand why that was uh, done at the time, but I think, um, it, it, you know, it's certainly not how I dealt with death when my children were growing up. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's hard to say how much of my parenting was influenced, but I know that my thinking about my children was influenced by the amount of time that I spent talking to people who had lost children. And so, you know, sometimes I remember one time in particular, Chris, standing by my son's uh, bed and trying to imagine, and I've talked to, to other mothers and they've done something similar, trying to imagine how I would feel if something happened to him. And, you know, and we try to do this. It's like sometimes people will say to me, you know, I try to imagine how I'll feel when my father dies or I'll try to imagine. And I say to people, you know, it's kind of like trying to imagine how it feels to punch your face, yourself in the face really hard. You, you really can't imagine it. But you try because you want to convince yourself that you could survive it. And so I would stand there and look at Eli and think, okay, imagine that something has happened to him and see if you can stand it. And of course, even imagining it, I couldn't stand it. And so what that taught me, what I came to, was really kind of goes back to something that we were talking about a moment ago about love. That, you know, and really something along the lines of what Colin Murray Parks said, right? The only way to prepare 
you know, for someone's death is to love them well while they're there. And so I think what it did for me more than anything was to really make me want to just drink in um, the joy, uh, you know, of their of their childhood, of their adolescence, every stage of their lives. My father once said to me after my mother died, he said, um, you can have a lot of joy in this life once you accept the fact that there are some things that you just can't change. And I think that attitude has kind of stayed with me and has taught me really that, yeah, you know, you have to grab the joy and the happiness and the love, and you have to risk the pain of loss, right, in order to live fully. Because you don't, <laughs> don't want to get to the end and feel that you missed out on the richest part of life. What about you? I mean, do you think that it's influenced the way that you raised your children? I think, I think it has. I mean, we talk, in fact, in your paper, you talk about this idea of the assumptive world. You know, we've got a, you know, a, a personal assumptive world, which is a set of, well, how about you describe it? You describe it far more eloquently in your paper than I could. Oh, well, you know, the assumptive world is kind of the constellation of everything that keeps us feeling that our feet are grounded, that we have some map of expect some set of expectations about how things are going to be you know that you and I can have this talk and we assume that you know we'll go to sleep or, we'll, or I'll go to sleep I'll wake up you know I'll do what I'm doing I'll have my breakfast that tomorrow will be more or less like today populated by the same people and that none of my most you know closely held beliefs about other people and about events will be violated. And, you know, I think part of that too is this idea that um, that's often held is that bad things happen to other people, that we're somehow special, you know, that we're somehow set, a, set aside. And I think for, for me that the work um, has changed that, that the mm. world is, for me, more unreliable perhaps it's it's more risky um and i know that's partly a distortion because of uh, of the work i do but w you know when my daughter was born i was doing a lot of work with parents who'd had children with profound disabilities and mm. and part of me was genuinely shocked when my daughter was born without a disability this kind of th this wow. sense that yeah it was a break uh, in your assumptive world <laughs> well well yeah and and that uh you know i'm not special uh, and I'm no different from the people that I sit across from. So I think, yeah, there's no question, I think, for me that the work has done that. Although I said to my daughter, if I was a bricklayer, perhaps I'd be just as a, a neurotic and anxious parent. Um, it's quite possible. It's quite it is quite possible. possible. I, I'm open yeah, to that I, yeah, possibility. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think, um, uh, yeah, the work, the work does changes. I do think that, you know, one thing that I've certainly come to appreciate and come to really talk to my clients about is uh, tolerance for uncertainty, which, you know, is kind of in a sense the antithesis of the assumptive world. You know, the assumptive world being all about, um, you know, what we can trust, what we 
expect to be, right? Whereas so much of what happens is not what we expect. And if we're too, uh, you know, too uh, strictly uh, dependent on the certainty of our assumptive world, uh, then when things don't go according to plan, I think our suffering is going to be really that much more intense. So mm -hmm. I think that becoming comfortable with uncertainty is really the work of, of a lifetime, in a sense. Well, we've kind of transitioned like your, your, your paper does, move from this kind of personal reflection into more conceptual kind of theoretical discussion. And so... You're certainly well-known um, internationally for your work around attachment-informed grief therapy. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. Um, many people perhaps would be very familiar with some other models. Um, Kubler-Ross's models, for example, is one that's still very well-known. Well so, And you mentioned earlier about this idea of us human beings being hardwired to form these emotional bonds. But how does that kind of play out in terms of kind of grief therapy more, more generally? Well, you know, the thing that really brought me into this uh, interest in uh, attachment theory goes back to, I think, you know, my, my earliest years in doing this work and my realization that uh, the people who were coming to see me uh, really weren't matching up with the model of uh, adaptation to loss that I had been taught in school and the Kubler-Ross models. And, you know, this was a, a little bit, uh, you know, made that less helpful for me. But more importantly, what I was finding was that the people who came to see me were really distressed by what they saw as their lack of conformity to the model of adaptation to loss. They really, a lot of people just felt like they were doing it wrong. Or they would come in and they would say, I really thought I was done with denial, but then today I went into the supermarket and I thought, oh, I should buy some of those oranges for my mother. So does that mean I'm back at the beginning? And there was just a lot of this feeling of, how is it that I'm back at the beginning? How is it that I can't get past this anger? How is it that I can't believe that I'm ever going to be able uh, to, to live without uh, this person who's died. Um, all kinds of powerful feelings and fears uh, that really I felt were not being addressed uh, in the way that people talked about grief and loss. So I became interested in the kinds of obstacles, really. What is it that makes grief hard for the people who are coming to see me? So I got interested in uh, complications in grief, and I was trying to understand what it is that interferes with the resolution of grief. And so along the way, um, I started learning about the, uh, the development of the brain in terms of how uh, brain development affects emotion regulatory capacity. And I started to think that the way that people's brains develop and the way that they uh, you know, manage emotion has a lot to do with the quality of their early attachments, their early relationships. So you know, I started really focusing on how in the case of adverse early relationships, you know, neglectful, abusive relationships, 
and just relationships generally where people did not have a secure bond with a caregiver, um, that there were deficits in emotion regulation and that where there were secure relationships early in life, that there was a real advantage in terms of the development of a capacity to manage emotion. It just made sense to me that emotion regulatory capacity is so important in coping with loss. So that was one way, right, in which it was so important. And then there were other ways in which it was so important because people who had secure relationships grieved in a different way uh, than people who had conflictual relationships. Uh, people with conflictual relationships had a lot more ambivalence about the person who had died. So I know I'm sort of jumping around a bit, but you know there are there are many different ways of, of looking at this. Um, you know, one of them is you know if you look at people who have insecure attachment, there are different beliefs about the value of therapy. There are different beliefs about how trustworthy people are. You know, you put all of these things together the emotion regulatory capacity, the internal models that people carry about other people, the kinds of relationships that people have. You put all of that together and what you get essentially is an attachment-informed understanding of how early relationships and the formation of these early attachment orientations which persist into adulthood influence people's adaptation to loss. Mm. Um, and one of my th my thoughts where you're talking about this kind of conceptual model was what are the extensions beyond you know grief and bereavement if you're not a, a you know a, a, a see yourself as a grief and bereavement practitioner especially in this field to what extent is is this kind of transferable to other kind of clinical issues that people might have yes i think a lot of the work that's been done um our book was in 2016 and uh, we're, I'm actually working right now on collecting research that's been done since then. And a lot of it, uh, bef well, before and after, takes the position that when you look at something like emotion regulatory capacity and its relationship to attachment, that you're really looking at something which it constitutes a common factor in a lot of the psychological difficulties that people have. So, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, about stress as it affects adaptation to loss, but the way that people are or are not able to manage stress, of course, influences a whole host of adaptations in life, right? And can create a whole host of problems in, uh, in functioning, right? And, you know, and, you know, so I would say that understanding attachment and understanding, I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, early relational security bestows a host of advantages, right? And many of those advantages are expressed in, uh, you know, f better mental health, right? Um, better physical health. Uh, better relationships, which also tend to be, a, I mean, it's a, it back, you know, it's a two-point, it goes back both ways, right? If you're more mentally healthy, you know, you're more likely to have a good relationship. If you have a good relationship, it enhances your, you know, your mental health. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question. And, of course, 
some aspects of attachment theory which have kind of been extended uh, into areas like, uh, you know, uh, research into uh, what's called epistemic trust, right? Uh, which is the ability to, or the openness to taking in information from other people, right? Somebody with low epistemic trust is disinclined to take in information from other people. Well, what happens there is that if you have an internal distorted view of other people or of your own, of yourself, right? Or of, you know, what life has to offer, right? It's going to be a lot harder for you to take in the information that's going to allow you to make a correction in that distorted view, right? So there's less of an opportunity for healing. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, it also raises um, interesting questions of a political nature. You know, how you deal with. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. Um, it is. You know, the it extent is. to which you um, trust and use um, other sources. Oh. But yeah. Oh, yes. Interesting. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so as we come to kind of the final minutes of our time together, the, the paper kind of finishes with this really reflection of the state of the world as it was then and and sadly still is and that's the impact of course of COVID and as I talked to you we're just starting a what's been called a one-week circuit breaker um, which means we're we're staying at home for the next week as as, as cases ah. increase in Victoria so yes. um, I was really interested in your kind of reflections there and how you've experienced that as you described this you know confinement and um the sense of the world kind of both shrinking. So do you have any uh, perhaps further thoughts on pandemic grief? Yes, as, as well... Some people, uh, some people are now calling it pandemic grief. For, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, all of these uh, things, of course, you know, you get these waves of, right? And I said, you know, for a while, everything was about pandemic grief. Now everything is about the, uh, you know, how people feel about the pandemic ending. And, you know, particularly for some people, you know, the panic of, ha of having to go back into the world. You know, um, I think that the thing about the pandemic for me, as, I, as I, I did say in the paper, the thing about the pandemic for me was that in one sense, it was the first time in my life when I felt like, you know, Okay, so, you know, there's this saying, we're all in the same, you know, we're all in the same boat. Well, yeah, you know, we're, we're all on the same ocean. Certainly, we're in different size boats. Uh, all of our boats are not the same. But I did feel that during the pandemic, more than at any other time in my life, there was a shared experience. Uh, you know, there was, you know, suddenly the news of the world was the same news all over the world. I, you know, I've just never experienced anything like that. So in one sense, it made me feel connected to all these people all around the world. But of course, on a micro level, it made me feel incredibly isolated, right? And it produced such profound despair, especially for people who you know, you had this situation where people were dying, uh, you know, 
at an abnormal rate, and the people who would be with them if they were dying couldn't be with them. I mean, it was really the worst of all uh, you know, possible situations. So I think the, the, outgro- the outgrowth of that, I think the consequences of that, Chris, are going to be with us for a long time. Because, you know, when you talk to somebody who wasn't there for their loved one's death, who couldn't be there for the loved one's funeral, you know, just in normal times, you know, you talk about that and people feel very bad. And now, you know, there are just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who couldn't be there. The other thing that I think is very uh, much a problem in terms of pandemic grief is what it's done to helping professionals. Because... You know, I, I work with a number of clinicians, and they they all uh, have felt really over the last year uh, kind of crushed under the weight of people's grief. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's no question that uh, this is something that's not. You know, this is something that's going to. You know, this is something that's going to persist, and I hope that we're able to sustain our attention to the needs of people who are, uh, you know, who are grieving. I know that you will in Australia, because in Australia, you do these things very well. I worry about how they're going to be managed um, here. Um, but I do have confidence that they'll be handled well there. Yeah. Well, I think also talking to international colleagues, it's, it's such a different experience depending on where you are in the world. Well, you know, you have 15 people. I mean, if, you know, if we ever get to a point where we have 15 or 30 or less than 100 people dying in a day, you know, it's going to be pronounced a miracle. So, yeah, it's a very, it's a very different, it's a very different thing. But, but yeah, but all, but, you know, all of that aside, I mean, I think I told you, or maybe I told you that long before I met you, I was impressed and and kind of mystified by the amount of literature and research and uh, programs in Australia uh, related to uh, grief and bereavement. Little did I know at that time that uh, I would subsequently become acquainted with the man who was largely responsible uh, for overseeing a lot of that that work. So... We'd better finish up soon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Phyllis. This, this has been great. I, I think for me, you know, having the opportunity to kind of reread your paper, you know, reacquainted me with that relationship between, between me, the individual, and me as the, you know, bereavement practitioner. Um, and it, that very kind of complex relationship. It's not something we talk about very often, our own no, personal world. No. And even mm-hmm. we haven't had a chance to talk about it today, but the extent to which the, the personal is present in the therapeutic relationship, to what extent yes. do we disclose yes. who yes. we are and what our experience has been. And I think if I could just say something very quickly about that, you know, because, you know, what I would say about that is that for me, it's not so much uh, about sharing the details of my experience as it is bringing the awareness and the experience of loss into how I speak to people, how I look at people, in my tone of voice. It informs the way that I connect with people. And, and, and just also speaks that general understanding of self-awareness and the extent to which we're 
we're both in the room and those times where we might at least psychologically remove ourselves from the room because of what's being discussed or, you know, explored. So a really, really kind of very rich, um, really rich discussion. I hope so. I hope I've, I've gotten, I hope I've answered. Let me reassure you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Ah, uh, ditto. Yeah. And we will certainly provide a link to the article and also a link to um, your and Jack's work on attachment informed grief. And the other article too, you know, you can also, yeah, the the, the reflection article. If you want to give people a link to that, absolutely, too. we'll do that. Yeah. Do that as well. But really, that's all we have time for on this episode of the book club. You've been listening to Chris Hall from the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement and Phyllis Kosminski from New York. And we'd really like to hear about your thoughts on this particular episode, as well as any ideas you might have for uh, future content, future episodes. And uh, for any information on what we've discussed in this episode, uh, you can check the show notes and be sure to listen to the next episode of the book club um, when that's released. So thanks for listening. It's goodbye from me, Chris Hall, and from... Phyllis Kosminski, thank you for joining us. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 